All right, you can go ahead and start turning to Genesis chapter 1. I know that's where we were last week, and I said that we were going to do the whole Old Testament in 12 weeks, so you would think that we would be moving a little bit quicker, but we're not. We're actually going to go through like three chapters today, so that's a lot, right? Three chapters out of the whole Old Testament? We're on a good pace. So turn to Genesis chapter 1. So last week, I kind of started with the question like, why, why do we even study the Bible? Right, that was kind of my, like, why do we want to study the Bible? And we kind of answered the question with, we want to study the Bible because we want to know who God is. And this week I kind of want to follow up on that and ask this question. Why do we want to know who God is? Why do we, why do we care to know about the nature of God? Why does it matter that we understand all these different characteristics of God? And I'm going to answer that in a lot more detailed way this morning, but to kind of give you the direction that we're going is we want to know about the character of God. We want to know who God is and, and, and what aspects about himself he has revealed to us so that we can be kind of the physical representation of him in his creation. And we're going to read this morning about how that's exactly why he put us here. That's exactly why he created us. That was the purpose for our being made. And, and hopefully by the end of this, we'll see a few aspects of his character that are revealed just in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis that will encourage us to kind of, again, open our eyes to receive the truth about who God is, the, the easy to take in, the difficult to take in, that will love every bit of the nature of God, every aspect of his character. And that we'll desire to be more like him because that's the mission that he left for us. So go ahead in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 26 and 27. So you got to think, God for like five days has been just saying words and things are being made out of nothing. There, there were no birds before. And he said, let's make birds. And all of a sudden there were birds. He said... Let's make, let's make water. There had never been water before. He says, let's make water, and there's water. So for, so for five days, he's been kind of filling out this creation with, with water and land and sky and sun and the moon and the stars. And he's created all of these things. And he's been creating all of these animals that are, that are all over the earth now. And now he's going to make something a little bit more personal. He takes a minute to kind of reflect on what it is that he's about to do. And that's what we're going to read here in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So... So I could take just those two verses and we could do a whole series just on those two verses and we could dive into the details about the significance of him creating us male and female and, and what it means to be made in the image of God. But suffice it to say, for the sake of what we're going to be talking about this morning, God took special attention and paid it to this aspect of his creation. Nothing else in his creation was made in his image, in his likeness. And, and to kind of simplify it to its simplest form, basically, we were made to be like God. Why would God make us to be like him? Because we were made to reflect God. 
Because, because God is in authority over all of his creation. And, and, and unlike the rest of his creation, God set us, man, mankind, he set us in authority over the rest of his creation. So we're supposed to be kind of his representatives here on earth, kind of ruling over the rest of his creation under his authority, right? He didn't say, let's make man just like us, even with us. He made us under him, but above the rest of his creation. So we were made to kind of represent God within his creation. We are the mirror through which the rest of the world gets to see the reflection of God. Particularly those of us who are in Christ, in the church, who, who are looking to God for our direction so that we can most accurately reflect him. That's why we're studying about the character and the nature of God over these 12 weeks. Because we want to know who it is that we're supposed to be reflecting. We want to know what about him, what about his character that we're supposed to be helping to reveal to the rest of creation. We're supposed to know how it is that God is governing over us and over the rest of his creation so that, so that we can kind of govern over the rest of his creation, take care of the creation that he kind of left in our care when he created us. Because to no other, other creatures did he say, you get to have dominion over the rest of this. He left us with a special task. And very quickly after that, he gave us very specific marching orders. Let's go ahead and keep reading. Verse 28. This, this is, okay. So if we're talking about God's interaction with man through this series, like him coming down in a sense and just speaking directly to us, this is the first thing that he ever said to anybody. So I think it's probably pretty important if this is the thing that he chose to say first. Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, there's a couple ways that we can read this. One, very literally, God was telling Adam and Eve to start having kids right then. Because if they didn't, there would be no us. If they never, if they said, we're not going to have children... It's just about me. It's just about us. We don't want to ruin that with, with the complexities of a big family or anything like that. There would be no mankind. Right? If they never had kids, that would have been it. So that, his first goal is, you guys got to multiply. You guys have to make more people so that you can more effectively take on this mission that I've left you. To have dominion over everything on earth. How are you going to take care of this whole creation that God has left in your hands by yourselves. He's saying, you guys got to be fruitful. You guys got to get on this thing. And I think there is some practical application for us there. He's saying, don't just sit there and think only about yourselves, but think about multiplication. Think about continuing the human race in a sense. And I think there's also a tie over to the way he says this to the church. Because if you think about it, what is it that Jesus left in the hands of the church? What was the mission that he left for us? He left us the Great Commission. What does he say? Go, make disciples of every nation, right? Go, multiply. Go out and make new believers. Make new believers who go out and make even more new believers. Make, make believers who are interested in seeing a multiplication of 
salvation across the world so that so that the word of God can spread all the way around the world, just like he's saying here, right? Have dominion over the whole world. We got to get the message, we got to get who God is, we got to get the reflection of the image of God. We got to be able to reveal who God is to the whole earth. That's what he's saying to Adam and Eve in a very physical and practical and literal sense. And we shouldn't overlook that. There's a whole sermon that I could preach just on that idea. And I kind of did like two years ago. We might have it recorded somewhere. But I think practically for us, the church today, I don't want us to think, oh, well, I'm not married. Or I have this circumstance or I have this situation. And that's just not a, like I can't take that literally. We, can't, we don't have to overlook this truth. This truth can still apply to us because, because God still desires that we would be multiplying at least in our faith. Multiplying at least in the message that we take. It shouldn't just stop with, I made a disciple. I made a disciple, I'm done. I'm quitting, I have, I have accomplished the task that Christ left for me. I, I led somebody to Jesus. I showed them who he is, and now they love Jesus. My work here is done. That's not multiplication, that's addition. He's saying, you got to keep going on this. This thing has to get big. This thing has to take over the world. That was the goal, that we would have dominion over the world, that, that, that the word of God would reach every, every ear on the planet. That's essentially what he's saying. So that, so that the whole world is reflecting the nature, the image, who God is to the rest of creation. Go ahead and keep going. Verse 29. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So here's the first aspect of God's nature that he's revealing to us. So, so first is that he revealed that, that we're supposed to be multiplying. We're supposed to be spreading the, the news of who God is. And for us, the church, the news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done all around the world. And secondly, now God is revealing that he is going to provide for our needs. He's going to sustain us. He's saying, look, I made this whole creation and all of it. You can go, go eat. I'm going to take care of you. You don't have to worry about food. You just worry about accurately reflecting who I am. Uh, he's saying, you don't have to worry that there's not going to be enough for you. He is a provider who meets all of our needs. Right? We don't have to, and, and, and we know this verse, like, like, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Or if God's able to feed these birds, if these birds aren't worried about what they're going to eat tomorrow, why are you worried about what you're going to eat tomorrow? It's very easy to worry too much about what's coming up in the future or to lock in on this one horrible thing that's happening in your life right now, this one difficulty that you're facing. Whatever that struggle may be, whatever situation that you find yourself in and say, this is hopeless, there is nothing for me. I'm just, God is just going to let me die. Right? I'm just, I'm, I give up. There is nothing left for me here. And what, and what God is revealing about himself here is like, look, I've made this beautiful creation. I've made all of this. I spoke and it happened. It was nothing before what I made it. 
don't you think that I am able to give you all the food that you need, everything that you need to survive? And that's what he's telling them. He's saying, guys, I'm putting you in this creation, and I don't want you to worry. I want you to know that I'm going to provide for every single one of your needs. Keep that word in mind, needs. I'm going to provide for every single one of your needs. Because we're going to talk about what happens when, when we get distracted by wants instead of needs in just a minute. And then let's, let's, let's think back to what God said as he was creating them. Because there's one more thing about God's, God's nature that I want us to kind of pick up on before we kind of move forward with what happened after he put Adam and Eve into creation. Um, and, and, we've, and, and honestly, I, feel, I was saying this to Tiff when I was getting this ready. I feel like we beat this horse over and over and over again. Like every single sermon we start talking about community. So you're probably like, yeah, we know we're supposed to be in community, right? But we're supposed to be in community. Let's think back to what, let's think back to what God was saying here. In, verse, in chapter 1, he says, let us make man in our image. He's speaking in plural. And, and he's saying, he's talking to what we now understand to be the, the three aspects of God's nature, the Trinity, right? He's one God, but he's got three persons. We'll get into the math of that some other time when I have... A lot more brain power and a lot more research done. But, but God, just by nature of who he is, is in community with himself. He's not alone. And what we see, if you go ahead and jump into Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Right after he's created Adam and he's put him into creation, he's had him name all of these animals and all of this stuff to kind of signify that he's going to be, be the dominant species who's kind of leading and, and, and taking care of the rest of creation, uh, God looks at Adam and says, The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So, so he's saying, It's not that God made something that was bad, right? Because all up to this point, he said, He made everything on this day and it was good. He made everything and it was good. He's saying, It's not good that man should be alone. So is it that God messed something up? Or is it just that he wasn't finished yet? I think it was that he was incomplete with the work that he was doing. And what he's saying is because he is in community and because he placed us into creation to reflect who he is, we cannot perfectly reflect God unless we are living in community like he is. That's why it's so important. That's why we keep saying this over and over and over again. You cannot live this life that he has brought us into on your own. You cannot just come here to this place so that it's as though you're in community, though you are not connecting with the believers who are around you, and you try to lead your life on your own when you leave this place. It is not good for God's creation, for us, to be on our own. If we are on our own, things fall apart. We have talked about this over and over and over again. When one person goes rogue, right, when they go off on their own, it only leads to sin and death and destruction, right? We cannot do this on our own. We have to be living in community, not just for the sake of our own accountability, but because that's how we're going to reveal who God is. We get a lot of people who see what the kind of community that we try to push for at CRC, who see the, 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 
the level of involvement that we have in one another's lives, and they say, that's not normal. Like, like parents have warned their children before that we're a cult, right? They're like, are you sure that you want to go to that church? They're, they're like all together, like all the time. And, and I don't know that that's normal. Maybe you should be careful about what it is that they're asking you to do. And it's not that we're a cult. I think it's that we're right. <laughs> right? God doesn't say, I'm going to take the weekend and go have some me time. God doesn't say, you guys go do your thing for a bit. I'm going to hang out at the house. Right? He's, he doesn't say, I'm going to take the day off, I'm going to lay on the couch, and I'm going to watch some college football. Right? What does God say? God says, hey, how about you guys all come over to my house, we make some chicken wings, and we watch college football together, and be the church and watch college football. That's what it's like to be in the church. We don't do things on our own. And yeah, that may sound abnormal, but that's because we have a world that desires to be, it's all about me, it's not about anybody else, I can take care of myself on my own. Right? We live in a society that says anything that you want to do, you have to do it by yourself. You've got to make something for yourself. And we're saying, no, no, no. God says, get together. Be together. Be, be in each other's lives. Be, be a part of the same body. There's a reason we use the word body. Because if one of us gets torn away, we feel it. It hurts us when the body is torn apart, broken apart, taken away. And that's because it's so ingrained in us, because it's so ingrained in who, the nature, who God is. God is in community, so we can't just overlook it. When, when Christ was up on the cross, dying for our sins, the most painful thing that he experienced was not the nails in his hands and his feet. Or, or, the, or the open wounds on his body from where they had beaten him and torn away his flesh. That wasn't what hurt him the most. What hurt him the most is, as he took on all of our sins, God looked away from him during that time. He, his, his communion, his community with God was severed. And he felt alone for the first time. Because he had only ever experienced perfect community with God. So we cannot overlook this idea that we are to be together and be acting as one body and feel the effects of being torn apart or being separated. We can't just be cool with having some mean time for however long that is. Because we feel the absence of our brothers and sisters. That was way more time than I wanted to talk about community. But it's important. It matters. So God says, I want you guys to be in community. And he gives Adam Eve. And he says, all right, let's establish a couple things. Actually, I'm going to go back up a little bit. This is right before he created Eve. And I'll talk about why that's significant in just a second. So uh, let's read verses 16 and 17 of Genesis chapter 2. At some point, I lost my place because I got all excited talking about community. All right, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying... You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, so God reveals that he has a set of standards that he expects that his creation would live up to. He doesn't just say, I'm going to provide for your every need. Do what you will. He doesn't just treat us as though we are, in fact, gods and have complete authority over everything. He says, I'm going to put you here in this place in creation, and I'm going to remind you that there is a standard that you have to live up to because I am still in authority over you. It is only somebody who's in authority over you who can set a standard for you, who can set a set of expectations for you. So God is, again, just kind of reminding him, look, yes, I created you. Yes, I've set you above the rest of creation. But I don't want you to get in your head that this means that you are me. I want you to remember who you are. You are somewhere between creation and me. You are still subjected to my authority. So that's the significant, that's the reason that God says I have these standards. I have these expectations of you. These things that I wish that you would not do. Right? Because I need you to realize that you are not me. That there is still a separation between God and the rest of us. And it's when we, we try to get out of that mindset, which is what Adam and Eve are going to do here in just a second. It's when we, when we break from the mindset that we are somewhere below God. When you think about it, significantly below God. But, but, but we are not him. It's when we break from that idea and try to go out on our own and think that we know better what, we know what is better for us than what he thinks is better for us or what he says is better for us. It's when we, when we break from that mentality that we are below God and should just submit peacefully to his will. That's when things go wrong. So what you see here in verse 16, God's provision of our every need, like we were talking about earlier, does not mean that he has provided us everything. Or every want. Right? He said, I will take care of your every need. You don't need this tree. Stay away. Just because God says, I'm going to give you everything that you need, doesn't mean that we need to start thinking, oh, well, that means I can do whatever I want. I can take whatever I want. Because that's a different word. Need and want are two completely different things. When we break from the things that God says we need, are things that we require to live that's when everything, like I said earlier, begins to fall apart. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve. I'm not going to read the whole interaction. Most of us have heard the interaction before. But Satan comes up to Eve in the form of a serpent and says, Hey, why haven't you eaten from that tree? It looks really good. And she says, Well, God said we're not supposed to eat it. We're not even supposed to touch it or we're going to die. Which is already not what God said. He just said don't eat it. She's already added some things in her mind. It wasn't... It wasn't effectively communicated to her what God's standard was. And I point that out because God laid out a standard before he even created Eve. He told Adam what the rules were and left it up to Adam to, to inform Eve what it was that they were and were not supposed to do. And so he hadn't done a very good job of preparing Eve for this situation. But the serpent comes up to Eve and he says, that's not going to happen. You're not going to die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. Right? And that's the idea that I was just talking about. Once we break with the idea that we are below God and that we can be God, that's when things are going to fall apart. And that's what happens. As Eve says, oh, be like God. That sounds pretty appealing. 
So she goes, she takes this fruit, she eats it, she hands it to Adam, who was right there. Don't get it in your mind that she did this all on her own. He was standing right there and he said nothing. She hands him the fruit, he eats the fruit. Immediately they realize, oh man, we've just broken our relationship with God. Everything between us and God is now severed. We aren't in perfect communion with him anymore. We got to go hide, right? And so God comes, he finds them in the garden, and he says, what are you doing? And they're like, we were hiding from you because we realized that we were naked. And he says, how did you know that? Did you eat that tree? And he said, well, she did. She made me do it, right? That's, that's Adam's response. She made me do it. And he says, what did you do? And he, she says, well, this serpent over here, he made me do it. So we're passing on the blame to the next person. And that's when we get to... The biggest speech that we're going to read today from God speaking to his creation. It's in Genesis chapter 3. You can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to read verses 14 through 19. And then we're going to kind of just pick a couple of sections out of here and kind of look at them a little bit more specifically. So she said, this is at the end of 13. The serpent deceived me and I ate it. Okay. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's a lot of stuff in there. Look at what he says to Adam. Let's start with Adam. He, sp he spoke to him last, but we're going to talk about him first. He says, because you reordered the creation that I gave you, right? Because he created Adam first, perfectly equal in value and worth to Eve, but, but he placed him in, in authority over Eve. Because, but because he listened to Eve, because he allowed this creation order to be reversed, because he, he ate the fruit that she gave him, because he allowed her to decide what they, as a family, were going to do. And we could talk more about that idea we have in the past. We could, if you want to talk about that in community groups or something, that would be an interesting discussion you might could have as well. But because, because you reordered this creation, because you listened to her, and she listened to a created thing, right? Because we were supposed to be in dominion over all the beasts of the field, right? Isn't that what he said? But because, because you listened to something that you were supposed to be ruling over, and you tried to think that you were God and put yourself above me. Now, all of creation is going to fight against you for the rest of your life. Right? He doesn't say, now you're going to have to work to eat. Because when he put him in the garden, he said to him, work this and eat. Like, like take care of this garden. He didn't say that the creation of work wasn't a result of sin. The creation of hard work where the ground fought against you was the result of sin. 
I don't know what it was like to garden before. Maybe you just kind of skipped through the fields throwing out, throwing out seeds and all of a sudden flowers just pop out and they're all singing songs in really high falsetto tones and these sorts of things like you see in cartoons. Maybe that's what gardening was like then, but it's definitely not that now. I, I, we have tried to garden. We have tried so hard to have a garden. And we, we tried carrots one time, but I didn't till the ground well enough, so it got really hard and the carrots literally grew down like two, three inches. And then it's like, then they got flat at the bottom where they tried to push on down. The ground was like, no, you can't, it's not gonna happen. It was fighting back against me, right? Some people can do it. That's not me. I got no green thumb. This morning I have a bit of an orange thumb because I was cutting carrots earlier and I stained my hands. That was awesome. But anyways. But he's saying it's not that you're going to have to work now. It's that your work is going to be difficult. I want you to realize that because you put a created thing over you, now that created thing is going to, in a sense, try to rule over you. It's going to fight back against you. You're going to have thorns. You're going to have thistles. It's going to be difficult to work the ground, which is all that Adam had to do at that point. And the way God says this to Adam and to Eve is, because you did this, this is what I have to do. In a sense, God's using language that's saying, my hand has been forced by you. I gave you this standard. You responded in this way, and now, as a result, I have to punish you. It's kind of like, and I understand this so much better now that I am a parent than when I was a kid. Because you're thinking, oh, that, that punishment is so not fair, right? I'm sure we've all thought that at some point. That's not fair. I should get to watch TV, or I should get to eat that snack, or I should get to... Go hang out with my friends. You can't make me not. That's not right. That's not fair. I don't like it. But when you come from the perspective of God, he's saying, I told you that I'm God, you're my creation, and that I have a thing that I don't want you to do. You do that thing. If God is going to remain in authority over us and reveal himself to continue to be in authority, he has to punish that. He can't let that go unmentioned. He can't say, oh... You ate it. You know things now. I guess let's move on. Or else he's kind of violated everything about who he has revealed himself to be at this point. So when we see God kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, and we think how unfair that may be. It's like, they just did this one thing. Can't you give them a second chance? Right? If God didn't immediately punish the sin that resulted from their actions, then he's essentially saying that... He, he's, he's reinforcing that behavior by saying, you can get away with whatever with me. I'm just going to let it go. And we want to think of God only as this merciful and gracious giver who kind of gives us a pass on everything that he does. But, but if there wasn't some sort of a punishment for sin, just like if, if, if every time Ellie threw a fit, which doesn't happen that often, but say she throws herself down on the ground, starts kicking and screaming. If I let that go just pass and say, that seems acceptable. We can go with that. That's kind of fun. If I teach her that, she's going to learn. All I have to do is throw a fit, and I get what I want. And I don't know about you guys, 
but I don't want that to be the way she grows up. And I think that's kind of where God was in this situation too. He wanted them to understand that their sin, their, their rejection of their mission, their, the thing that God had left for them, their rejection of that wasn't okay, wasn't cool. Because, because God has standards and they had broken with those standards. So he says to Adam, your work is going to be difficult. He says to Eve, when you have kids, you're going to remember this day every time. Because this is not going to be a fun thing for you anymore. I don't know what it would have been. I, that's a repertoire. I don't know. <laughs> Talk about it amongst yourselves later. Man, what would that have been? No, no, no. no. Okay, so. There are going to be these physical reminders in your life now that remind you, A, that you broke your communication, your communion with God, and that he is still an authority over you. Because, because every time Adam sticks his finger on a thorn, or every time Eve has a child in the future, she's going to remember, this is a result of my thinking I could do for myself what God said I should not do. My thinking that I could be on the same level as God. And not remembering that I am somewhere below God. So he gives them these things that are going to serve as a reminder. But we can't just dwell on this idea that God is this, this mean and wrathful God who is just going to say, you've sinned, I'm sending you out of this garden, that's it. Let's go back. Chapter 3, verse 22. Let's read this verse again. Oh, we haven't read this one yet. We're going to go back to another one in just a second. Sorry. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Did I read that right? Yeah. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which it was taken. So, God isn't just me. He's, he's hurt because Adam and Eve had sinned. But immediately after this, this long speech that he just said, where he said, here's all the punishments of the sin. He says, I'm going to kick you out of the garden. And you think, that sounds mean. That sounds unfair. Why can't he just forgive them? Or why can't he just punish them in the way that he said, but still leave them in the garden? Because God knew that there was this tree of life in there. And if they ate it, they would live forever. And if they lived forever, then God knew they would live forever trapped in their sin. And God did not desire that they live forever trapped in their sin. So out of mercy, right? Let's look at this. Out of mercy, God separated them from this perfect garden that he had created for them. Because he did not want them to continue in their sin forever. God is merciful to not let us live in our sin forever. God is merciful that he doesn't, that, that, that part of the punishment for our sin was death. Because that is the way that we can escape from this life that is filled with sin. He is good to give us that out. So what seems mean and unfair, maybe from some perspectives, is actually born out of a desire for mercy. Why did he desire, why was he desiring to be merciful? Why didn't he just say, well now they're broken, but at least they can live forever. Why didn't he just leave it at that? Because God had always had a plan for redemption, even from the very beginning. Now we're going to go back. Genesis 3.15. I've read this verse before. 
in this context. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And here's that key phrase. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I've asked this question before. Caleb doesn't get to answer. What, what is the really fancy? And Carla, you don't get to answer either. Maybe even Tiff, because she's heard it too. Okay, so like everybody knows this by now. Good. What's the fancy theology word that we use to say that this section of the Bible is describing? No. Say what? No, that's, that's Jesus appearing. What? No, that's next week. Theodicy's next week. That's it. Proto-evangelium. Gelion, gelion. It's a G. Proto-evangelium. It is the first telling in history of the gospel. And you're like, I don't see the gospel there. Well, what we see here is that he's saying to Satan, right? You're going to be at war between. It's going to be. There's going to be separation between you and the rest of creation. Y'all are going to fight against each other. This woman's offspring. You're going to hurt it. But in the end, he's going to stomp on your head. Like, like if you think about. If you think about injuries, I would much rather have my heel be hurt just a little bit rather than having my head stomped in, right? So what he's saying is, from Eve, Jesus is going to come. Jesus, you're going to think you've beaten him. You're going to kill him. But what you've actually done is sealed your own fate. This is the promise that God is giving to Satan from the very beginning. So from the very beginning, we can know that God is merciful to let us not live forever in our sin because he's always had a plan for redemption, even from the very beginning. And this is what I hope that we're going to start getting used to realizing as we read through this whole Old Testament, that every single step along the way is more further proof that God has this whole thing mapped out and has had this whole thing mapped out from before the time that he created everything. There was never a step along the way where God went, oh, didn't see that coming. From the very beginning, God knew that he was going to and how he was going to redeem a broken creation. So where does that leave us? Where are we in this? If I just leave it right there, there's a promise of, of redemption. That's awesome. What does that mean? What are we doing right now? Go ahead and turn to Romans 8. Go ahead and turn to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Read verse 19 through 25. Actually, let's go back to 18, and then I'll keep going. So Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 19. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation, see right here, creation's fighting back against us, right? That's what he just, we just said with regard to Adam and his sin. Creation is fighting against us. For we know that the whole of creation 
has been groaning together, listen to this, in the pains of childbirth, right? We're, we're being reminded. Think of all of these things that were consequences of our sin, consequences of our action. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. So he's saying, we, the church, us now, right? We see that everything is broken. Everything is aching. Everything around the world, like every time there's another earthquake, or there's a volcano that erupts, or there's a tornado, or there's a hurricane, or something, some act of the earth fighting back against us. We are being reminded constantly. This is because you broke your communication with God. You sinned. You left God. You thought you knew better than he did what was good for you. And you see this all the time. It was subjected to, right, what does he say? It was subjected to futility, not willingly. It's not like the earth just said, I think all of a sudden I'm going to get angry with the rest of creation. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope, right? In the hope that the creation will be set free from its bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of glory, right? So because of the work that God had planned from the very beginning, that Christ will come and Christ will die so that he can make all things new and fixed and better again, we get to have hope in the midst of whatever suffering or pain or difficulty it is that we're facing. So we're, yeah, we're kind of in this holding pattern where, where, where Christ has come. We sang about this, right? We sang about this right before. Christ has died and Christ has risen. And then we're right there. But we don't stop there because then Christ will come again. He's going to come back and he's going, that's when creation will cease to fight against us. That's when the pain and things that we feel will go away. And we won't have to deal with those things anymore. He's going to make a new creation that we can rest in. So until then, what are we supposed to do? One, we've got to be excited about the idea that Jesus is coming back. Right? We don't want to be afraid of the idea that Jesus is coming back. We don't want to hear he's coming back and then be sitting around in sin doing something that we know he would be disgusted to see us doing. Because when he comes back, we want to be saying, look at what we're doing for you, Christ. Look, look, we are, we are reflecting who you are, like we talked about earlier. We're reflecting the image of God to all of the world. We're saying, hey, look, this is what Jesus looks like. This is who God is. Look at us. Look at the way that we are living our lives. We're multiplying, right? We're going out. We're making disciples. That's what we're doing now in the meantime. Because we have the hope. That Christ is coming back. And we can, we can trust that he is reliable. And that we know that he will be here. We need to live our lives now. In a way that says. 
you guys out there need to see who Christ is. And I'm going to live my life so that you can see what he looks like. I want you to know who the God is that I serve. By the way that we live. By the way that we live together in community. That's how we're going to reflect who God is to the world. And we do that because we have a hope that he's going to fix everything right around us that's broken right now. So let's pray.